I'm Paul Williams, and you're listening to The World is Wrong. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about The Indian Runner. (laughs) (coughs) Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm one of your hosts, and my name is Brian Connolly. And yes, we are here to talk about Sean Penn's writing and directorial debut, The Indian Runner, based upon the Bruce Springsteen song from the album Nebraska and have you seen this film before Brian no this is a first time viewing ah well I'm so didn't know what I was getting into (laughs) I am so curious to know what you think about it but I guess (laughs) why don't we play a clip first and then I'll tell you my take and then we'll get into what you think about it wonderful okay there might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Yeah. Your pop should have been an Indian runner. This place looked better when I had it. I'll bet it did. You know why? Because you had the fire in you. People got an eye don't even live on the land they're working. Ain't got no fire. Never had it. Fire's out now. So what? Between the cradle now, you you happen. You burn, brother. What do I have to show for? What you got, Farmer Joe, is knowing, knowing he once was on fire. Shit, shit, shit. Man, I burned. Land was churned. I burned. Soul was turned. I burned. I took what you earned. Lesson learned. Meet the John. The Indian Runner from 1991 is the debut feature as a writer and director from Sean Penn, based upon the Bruce Springsteen song Highway Patrolman from his album Nebraska. The film never features the song, but it does stick fairly closely to the story it tells of Joe Roberts, the titular highway patrolman, and his troublemaking brother Frankie. The film takes place in the late 1960s when Frankie, played by a young Viggo Mortensen, returns home from Vietnam. Joe, played by David Morse, who stayed behind to work his farm, has lost the farm and is now working as a cop and raising his young son with his Mexican wife, played by Valeria Golino. 
Over the course of the film, we see Morse's Joe doing his best to help his brother, whose PTSD seems to have exacerbated his already wild and violent nature. When Frankie moves back home with his pregnant girlfriend, played by Patricia Arquette, it looks like he's getting his shit together, but the peace never lasts, and whether, and whether he is being abusive to Arquette or exploding in violence on the pre- on the patrons of his local bar, Frankie seems determined to blow up his life. As in the song, Joe tries to shield his brother from the impact of his actions, but when Frankie kills a bartender, played by Dennis Hopper, it leads to the film's finale with Joe chasing Frankie to the state line only to stop and watch his taillights disappear. And that's The Indian Runner. So, uh, how is the world wrong about this movie? Well, this is another one where I feel like it got generally good reviews at the time, but I don't think most people saw it, and I don't ever really hear people talk about it. And to me, it is... I mean, I've only seen... I've seen three out of four of Sean Penn's... uh, the films that he's directed, maybe he's, I think it's four, um, but this is definitely my favorite, and I just feel like it is such a unique film in terms of the performances, in terms of its origin. Uh, it just, it, it, when I saw it at the time, it, it blew me away. Um, I actually have a story. I was at the screening of The Prom, the film I did with, mm-hmm. with uh, Steven Shainberg. I was doing what I usually do when my film is showing, which is hanging out in the lobby uh, because I don't like watching myself. And I was hanging out there and there were some people who I guess were some, you know, Hollywood agency producer types, these two women. And we were talking and I was mentioning the the Indian runner and saying how much I liked it. And they're like, wow, you should really talk to Sean because you're like the only one. <laughs> uh, so I just feel like maybe that speaks to the way the industry saw the film. Yeah. But I think it's really, really special and very exciting. And at the end, uh, he he dedicates the film to Hal Ashby Frank Bianco and John Cassavetes and Frank Bianco I looked up he was a a makeup artist on the film and it was his last film so I assume he he passed away on the film which is why he's getting the that credit but the the thank you to Hal Ashby and John Cassavetes I feel like that really that's a clue to appreciating this film because it really does live in a place that both of those directors lived and that's not easy to do. So, uh, yeah, that's why I think the world is is, is kind of wrong about this film. Yeah. <laughs> I know it was a hard movie to find. Like uh, at Vulcan, I believe we had just like a bootleg of it taped off of a Japanese laser disc or something <laughs> like that. I, I'm not sure if it's had an official release <laughs> since then, but that, that was a version we had was like a strange sort of... Uh, unofficial one and then the only way you can find it right now uh was on canopy i had it on like you can get on canopy the great uh library um website um but it's funny i um 
at work last night. I was telling people, oh, I'm going to watch The Indian Runner. And nobody seemed happy about that. <laughs> like the one guy uh, was like, oh, I tried to watch it. It was just too slow. I just couldn't get into it. It just was like nothing was happening. And I was like, okay, well, well I'm watching it anyways. <laughs> so, um, and, did you uh, ask that guy what he thinks uh, about John Cassavetes films? <laughs> It's just a bunch of people talking. I don't understand. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and I really did like this movie quite a bit. Um, though I wouldn't recommend watching it first thing when you wake up, which is, which is what I did today. <laughs> Started the day uh, with this very depressing, bleak uh, film. Um, <laughs> but, and I didn't know, I didn't know going into it that it was based on that Springsteen, Springsteen song, which I really like that song and I really like the album of Nebraska. And it really does follow the song if you like the song. And I, uh, before watching the movie, I listened to the song a few times, read the lyrics just to get in the right headspace. And uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to kind of talk through this movie. Yeah, are you? Have you seen any of uh, of Sean Penn's other the other films that he's directed? No, I've not seen any of them. Hmm. So now he did the two with Jack Nicholson, the Crossing Guard and the Pledge, and then he did Into the Wild, which I read the book but never saw the movie, and then he had a movie last year called Flag Day, I think, and I didn't see that one either. So definitely. And then there's Not, one from 2016 called The Last Face with Javier Bardem and oh, Charlize yeah. Theron. Never, never even heard of that movie. Un film so, de Sean Penn. So I think he <laughs> made it in uh, France. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate a filmmaker that's an actor who makes a movie and doesn't put themselves in it. Like, that's a, and it, it's, it's a, it's a nice choice. I think that's definitely... Uh, I mean, I read that Sean Penn said that he went at the time he was going to quit acting and just direct. And that was sort of his mindset when making this movie. So I guess that would explain maybe why he's not in it. And also, I just feel like when you're directing your first movie, you want to put all your effort into directing it. Especially since Sean Penn seems like an intense guy that I imagine it would have been hard for him to act and direct. And I don't think he's in any of his movies he directed, I, I think. Is that right? Maybe he's in Into the Wild? I don't believe so, yeah. But, like, yeah. Um, but, yeah, what a whew, what a debut film. Like, for someone who never even made a short film before, this is pretty darn good <laughs> for going right out the gate. Yeah. A $7 million budget made 191000 at the box office. <laughs> That might explain why the women in the lobby said you should tell poor Sean that <laughs> you liked his movie. Well, yeah, where how do you want to start talking about this? Like, I have some notes. I like, I just th- definitely some things I want, I'm interested in with this movie. Like, where do you want to? Well, I, I did a little bit of research on some of the background of the film that I didn't know. First of all, I wasn't aware that Sean Penn dated Springsteen's sister. Oh, the lady who was in uh, Sleepaway Camp. I guess. Two and three, the actress? Yes. Oh, wow. (laughs) And supposedly uh, Springsteen wasn't really that into Sean Penn. (laughs) I thought he was kind of a cocky (laughs) jerk and didn't like him dating his sister. And one drunken night, like 10 years before this film was made, uh, Sean Penn was like, I'm going to make a movie out of Highway Patrolman. (laughs) You know, like whatever. And Springsteen was like, you know, 
Sure, Sean, whatever. <laughs> and then basically when the film was done, he showed the film to Springsteen and that's when Springsteen agreed to let him put the credit. This film was based upon the song Highway Patrolman by Bruce Springsteen. So Penn made the film without knowing whether or not Springsteen would approve, which is definitely a bit of a higher high wire act. <laughs> I mean, he could probably like legally get away with it, right? Because you're just kind of doing an interpretation of a song. So like if Springsteen said, no, fuck you, your movie's garbage, the, the movie could still exist, right? Like even though yeah, he just couldn't the put the credit, he just couldn't put the credit Con- on. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, an interesting choice to not include the song at all. I but think I guess it's that brilliant. makes sense because the movie is the song. Yeah. And like, I, I, you're in you're in the song. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the things that struck me because I had heard that he was going to make the movie about based upon this and I was looking forward to it. And then when he made the choice not to include the song, I just thought that was awesome. Very bold, very confident, just had yeah. the right choice. <laughs> Um, also kind of weird, but considering, uh, Sean Penn's politics, Steve Bannon was an executive (laughs) producer on this film. Well, I saw, I saw that credit and I was like, aha, somebody named Steve Bannon produced it. Wonder what Sean Penn thinks. Then I looked it up. I was like, oh, it actually is Steve Bannon. Uh, very weird. I, (laughs) What is it with so like so like there's like rules don't apply? Yeah, Warren Beatty's working with Steven Mnuchin, Sean Penn's working with Steve Bannon. Makes me think their uh, their commitment to their to their left wing politics might be well, and like these are like the most left wing guys too. Yeah, being dealing with like the most not left wing, the most right wing guys. It's yeah. like it's just really amusing. Uh, yeah, unbelievable. But and I guess there's a quote. Somewhere from Sean Penn just saying, like, yeah, he was an asshole. He wasn't great to work with. He, like, has to be expected. <laughs> I'm sure if you talk to Steve Bannon, he's like, Sean Penn was an asshole. He wasn't great. These guys don't get along. Um, and this is our second, I believe, our second film with a score from Jack Nietzsche, who did uh, the score for The Hot Spot. Oh, so a, a Hopper connection there. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. Didn't put that together, but yes, it is. <clears throat> okay, so let's start by talking about the cast, because I feel like this, in in true Cassavetti's style, this film is really all about the cast. And- yeah. I mean the story, yeah, but it's it's really it's a it's a vehicle for some tremendous acting, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's an area that Sean Penn uh, can you know that's his that's his great skill. So of course he brings that skill to his directing. Yeah. So let's let's start by talking about uh, some of the supporting characters in in the film to me the real standouts was casting uh sandy denny and charles bronson as joe joe and frank's uh parents yeah 
two tremendous performances. And I was reading, I guess there was a, there was a very long scene with Sandy Denny with Frank and Joe visiting her at her deathbed. Mm. And she had cancer at the time and everyone knew it was like this really big emotional scene. But then Sean Penn, one of the things that he was struggling with in the film and making the film was like, he really, he, he found Vigo and he thought he was, was great for the role. They really wanted a movie star, but for that role, but Sean Penn made what I think is a very smart, uh, you know, a great choice in, in choosing Vigo, but he felt that Vigo's natural kindness was coming through too much in the character so he was mm. doing all these different things to try and make him less sympathetic, including <laughs> not showing up to his mother's uh, deathbed. So they had to cut mm. that scene. But I sure hope if there's ever a Blu-ray release of this, that that Sandy yeah. Denny scene gets put on it because there's a there's an interview with Vigo where he's just talking about how it was like she was just on a, such a, a totally different level than all the rest of them. Which, considering the level that those are all all those people are acting at, <laughs> uh, you can see it in the very in the few scenes she has. She's just yeah. a raw, as she always has been, just a raw emotional, like seemingly losing control kind of actor, but clearly yeah, was yeah. in control, was a professional yeah. in control. But going back all the way to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, it's that's what she does. Is this just wonderfully? raw uh, kind of performance style. Yeah, that was that was amazing. Do you have any thoughts about her performance? Uh, yeah, I disagree. That, I agree that it's like she's she's in the movie for just a brief flash. It feels like she's bar- like barely in it, but it's just what she brings is so great. And I didn't know she was in this movie, so when I saw her face, like I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> this is great. Uh just like who else is trying is casting her in their indie film in the early nineties? No, but nobody as far as I know. So just it's just like and it's just part of that. I think Penn really trying to tap into this sort of new Hollywood thing with this movie and you know, and abusing some of these actors from this from that era. Um, yeah. And I'm really really curious to because you're you're a you're a big Bronson fan, bigger Bronson fan than me probably. And Charles Bronson is in this, and I was—I'm—I'm I'm oh. so curious to know what you make of his performance. It's just so good. Like, it is a total shame that he didn't get some sort of like Oscar nomination for it. Like, it's a small role, but like this—this this is like coming off of like a decade where he was just doing schlock for like Canon films, where it's just like all the Death Wish sequels and like rip movies that are basically rip-offs of Death Wish, which is him you know, shooting people <laughs> for like 10 plus years. And you just forget that like, and he's not terrible in those movies. He's great in those movies. He's very good in them. But you, you just like, th- like this is him like really being able to like, I don't know, just like really act. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way that he wasn't in the other things, but like there's something about him just playing this kind of sad dad. He doesn't have the iconic mustache here. He's like clean shaven, and it's just so like with everybody in this movie. It's just it's something. There's something so real and raw and vulnerable about him here. And to see him as this like sad old man, 
is w- really cool. I want more of that. I would like. I would have been <laughs> such if Charles Bronson alternated between the the shoot 'em ups and the tough guy, and then occasionally gave us some of this. Oh, I mean, it just it's. Uh, yeah, like I've it's never just, seen Charles Bronson's face light up in a smile. I don't think. Yeah, <laughs> like it, he'll smile in a movie, but it doesn't. His face doesn't light up. It gets colder, or it gets. But, but him in the scenes with his kid, with the with the kid in the yeah. movie, saying the word veg- vegetables. Yeah, like, excited. The kid saying vegetables, which I'm sure was unscripted moment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's like a baby, and then yeah, the. I mean, and we're going to spoil this movie, so if you haven't seen it, you know, don't listen to this. But, like, when he calls Joe the the night he kills himself, and he just, he all he says to him is, like, oh, you should fix that tile in your kitchen, is giving him some sort of, like, <laughs> advice while he's, like, you know, and you know something's wrong because he's up late at night, just drinking at the table, just looking sad. And then you find out that's the last thing he said to his son before he killed himself. Um... Really good. And again, just like with Sandy Denny, like it's a tiny, it's a small role and, but it's just, it packs so much. And like, I mean, nobody's bad in this movie. This is a movie full of like fantastic performances across the board as to be expected from a, you know, really, really good actor. Um, Have you ever been directed by an actor? Um... I just wonder, like, what is it that's different, like, from someone who has had that experience on the other side of the camera? Oh, than well, going yes. To the other side, you know. Yes. And, yeah. It, it. Well, it's much. It's. It's. It's a much better experience than than when you're being directed by someone who is more of a technician. They on the yeah. on the film Far From Home. I remember there was a joke. Uh, Mirt Avis, who directed the film, and is it's a wonderful director. But he was mostly known for directing videos. He directed a lot of the late 80s, the, the Joshua Tree era mm-hmm. YouTube videos, and a lot of the of the Tunnel of Love era Springsteen videos. And the joke on the set was that he would be like, what are those people doing in front of my shot? They're <laughs> acting. <laughs> And sometimes you definitely get that feeling when you're working with someone who is more of a director, director. And then there are, and then there are people who are not actors, they're technical directors, but they want to be really good actor directors. And those people can be actually sometimes those guys, those can be the worst because they don't really know what they're doing, but they're they think they're being supportive, but they're actually just being uh, sort of manipulative and uh, sort of tone deaf, mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah, I, I mean, anytime you're working, you you're dealing with some. You have to find your groove with the with the director. But uh, but when I the film I did in Europe with uh, this Mich- with Michel Schottenberg, a film called um, Averill's Arrival, he was uh, he had come up as an actor. And he, I, that was probably the best experience I ever had on a set. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I just feel like you can tell when watching this movie that, like, Sean Penn, clearly an intense guy, an intense actor. 
and you can just feel him rubbing off on all these people. Like, like these people are all great, you know, apart from Sean Penn. But like, you can just have, you can see them trying to match his, the intensity that he brings to his roles. Like everybody in this movie is really going for it. And I feel like a lot of it must be because he's just a really good director and really good at communicating with these people, kind of the emotions and the beats and the things he wants. And just like, yeah, it's, and Charles Bronson, like being allowed to do this kind of role is is great. Uh, I love that he cast him because like you could see someone else casting like some sad old man, some actor who you like or something. But the idea of taking this guy that we know so well as being this like kind of tough, masculine presence in a movie and having him to kind of be this sort of like sad, you know, old man kind of at the end of <laughs> his life. Uh, really powerful stuff. Let's look at the uh, the partners of our two leads. We have Valeria Golino playing. I, I think she's Italian, right? Correct. <laughs> playing uh, Joe's Mexican wife. Um, <laughs> eh, you know. <laughs> It was a different time, 1991. <laughs> that's that's the magic of the Ita- the Italian. Uh, you know, they can they can play uh, every type of ethnicity. <laughs> Should they? I don't know. But you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> and this if, was hey, if, if 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 Andy Garcia can play Italian in Godfather Three around the same time. Let, let's have an Italian play a uh, Hispanic. Sure. It's, just a, it's like a trade. It's a little... <laughs> it's a one-in-one-out deal. That <laughs> Yeah. I'm trying to see where this is in... I remember the first time I remember her was showing up in Rain Man. Oh, that's right. So this would have been a few years after that. And this has got to be around the time she was also in the Hot Shots movie. The first one. Yeah. I want to say that was around 90, like... Yeah, same yeah. year. Same year. Where she was sort of like, she was popular. Yeah, at the time, I remember her being in a lot of things. Um, like she was the the it girl. The it girl. Kind of, yes, the sort of the, in, the not the sort of the the prestige it girl. Mm-hmm. You know, because Rain Man. Yeah, she just had she had that had some kind of like special quality and she does have a special quality in this like she's compl- she's t- so likable and um <laughs> i think it's funny that her character is smoking pot all the time all the time <laughs> and and like and she tries to keep it a secret even though like david morse when he comes home he's like waiting outside patiently being like have you hid the evidence yet it's like he knows like there's no reason for you to be sneaking around with it just because he's a cop or whatever like he doesn't seem to really care (laughs) and her dealer is benicio del toro is that no isn't that what he gives her in the in the when he leaves he hands her the envelope isn't that the pot then you see yeah but that's not benicio del toro oh is it yeah, isn't it? Or am I just totally thought I saw Benicio del Toro in this movie and it wasn't him at all? Uh, I didn't <laughs> notice it as Benicio del Toro, but uh, let's let's see this. I'm, I'm I want to look at the the full credits. Yeah, Benicio del Toro as Miguel. Whoa! Yeah, 
Whoa! Well, I mean, I, I saw it being like, oh, and I was expecting him to come back, but I guess he wasn't famous enough yet to, <laughs> to do it. Good for a moment there. I thought I was racist. Wow. <laughs> so I'm glad that it was finished on the door. Yeah. Uh, just a little moment. Just one moment there where she's... Because uh, her job is she... Or what she does in her spare time is she teaches people English who speak Spanish. And one of the people that she's teaching who talks back to her in Spanish and she says, I don't speak Mexican. And then the guy who's picking her up is Benicio Del Toro and he, and he runs her a little, you know, package of uh, weed. Wow, I did not pick up on that. How early is that in his career? Is that like... I mean, 91, I mean, the only thing I would have seen before this with him was he was in that James Bond movie, License to Kill, where he's like the hitman. Um, he was in an episode of Miami Vice. Yeah, I, yeah. Miami Vice. So, like, he was kind of playing thugs. Like, this is before... Because, like, the big break for him was Usual Suspects, right? That was the yeah, big, like... Yeah, 94. Now we know. So, soon, not quite there yet. But, hey, Sean Penn knew even back then. Even for one scene, you put this this together, something about this guy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, then we get to... I think one of the hit the 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 real heavy hitter performances in this, which is Patricia Arquette, in sort of full on true romance, like dreamily, you know, sort of dreamy, weirdo, yeah. romantic. What like how would you describe? It's not quite manic I, pixie dream girl, but no, I just I've always loved her, and when I was a younger man, I definitely had a huge crush on her from this era of uh, of her career. Like, there's something like, there's something odd about her because she's really pretty, but then there's something just like strange and off. And it's it's not the pixie dream girl thing. It's like there's like an innocence to her characters, but her characters are also like, um, not afraid to <laughs> their. I don't know, like, it's hard to kind of explain it. Like, they're all, all the ones that she kind of plays from this era, like, from True Romance and this, and uh, where she is just, like, yeah, just, like, she's the one who'll say sort of what everyone's thinking in the room, or she doesn't really seem to care, but she's not, like, some rebel. She still comes off as, like, this really good spirit, this really nice person, and her her constant screaming in this movie <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> the first time she does it, <laughs> just it's it's incredible. <laughs> Very good screamer. When she's just smoking pot with Valerie Galino yeah. and then wakes up, wakes the, baby. up the baby. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's there's this. She's definitely like. And there's the part, too, when she freaks out because she touches the beard of the bearded woman that they see outside a bar. Yeah. And she screams and runs into the car. Um, and then what's interesting is that, like, so she's very loud and screamy when she's having a good time. But when things don't get so good between her and her and Vigo, she does not get into a screaming match with him. She just kind of gets a little quieter, it feels like, and just kind of gets kind of upset. And, and one of the most saddest scenes in the movie when he's hurling the peas at her oh god and it's just brutal what a great scene i mean for the two of them get to that wow (laughs) wow but she yeah uh but she does some strange things in this movie like uh wearing an adult diaper and a pacifier on her standing on her head while vigo times her and then once she passes that 
then he proposes marriage to her. <laughs> very odd. A very odd thing to do. Yeah, it, um. there's a. It's not Mickey and Mallory, but it feels like there is something uh, of that. <laughs> that yeah, like, vibe clear, between cl- these two. And clearly, like her parents don't approve. Like you see, like a disapproving dad look out the window when she runs up. But she's definitely like, she is infatuated with the Frank character, and. You know, get is definitely, yeah, like knows that she's in dangerous territory because I mean, you're dating an ex con Vietnam vet with multiple Nazi tattoos above the neck. <laughs> so it's who, like who at the, we're introduced, <laughs> like, that basically we find out that he was in prison because she sends a letter to Joe yeah. saying, uh, then he hit me, my dad put, put, send him, uh, called the cops because he hit me, but don't worry, I'm here to take care of him. Which is a uh, red flag. <laughs> a lot of red flags <laughs> with this relationship. But uh, for whatever reason, she is, you know, I mean, he's a handsome man. Vigo, we'll yeah. talk about that. But he's definitely like, from the moment you see him, you can tell it's trouble. <laughs> not, not a person you'd want to marry. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, Patricia Arquette really good and is this like one of the first serious things she did like post uh kind of being in more mainstream stuff like i feel like there was then a long line of great performances from her in the in the 90s um oh yeah uh let's see looking at it i'm just curious as to where this lies in her because like i feel like i even though i saw her in nightmare on elm street 3 I didn't really get very aware of her until it was True Romance was when I was like, oh, who's this lady? Like, I yeah. was like, really, which was a few years after this, or a year after That's this. That's 93, yeah. And then yeah. Ed Wood is 94, also yeah. tremendous performance. Flirting yeah. with Disaster, 96. Mm-hmm. Lost Highway. Lost Highway in 97. Yeah. High Low Country in 98. And then, of course, your favorite, Little Nicky. <laughs> yeah. uh, bringing out the dead is 99 then little nicky in 2000 and then human nature in 2001 which i think is funny because when she touches when patricia arquette touches the bearded lady's beard and then she goes into the car and she's sort of looking at her face as if she could grow a beard it made me think that she was doing her you know very early work in preparation for Human Nature, <laughs> which is a, a film that I definitely want to do on this podcast. At oh, some point. definitely, yeah, so good. Um, but I would say if you had asked me in the '90s who my favorite actress is, I would have said Patricia Arquette. Like I was just like into into what she was doing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and kind of stealth. Like I don't think that people at the time were talking about her as one of the great actors of her generation she just kept being really good i remember there was a point where i was like wait a second i think patricia arquette's been in like five or six of the best movies of the decade (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah so i guess we should talk about vigo now uh, yeah, I think it's a good lead into Vigo. Um, and this has to be like the first yeah. big thing for him, right? Yes. Like as before this, he, he also was on an episode of Miami Vice, as everyone was. But this has got to be the first starring role 
like an unknown at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah. man, it's just like he from the beginning has it. <laughs> He's so good. He is so good always. Yeah, yeah. This performance is well. It's just um, it wasn't a star making performance, but it is a star making performance in a so, same sort of stealth way. Like it, this film did not make Vigo into a star. That would have to we would have to wait for Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, <laughs> but it definitely put him on the map. Yeah. And, like, he he had done a few things before, like, looking at his filmography. He was the star of the movie Prison by Rennie Harlan from 87. Uh, and then he was in Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. So he's definitely in sort of the uh, horror world. You acted with him, right? Yeah. In the film Tripwire, I actually uh, introduced him to my agent, who's now currently who's still his manager. And, uh, very, very cool. <laughs> and I remember around the time, so I around that time, so I, 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 when he signed with my agency, he was uh, sent me a nice thank you note and was like, "Hey, you should really check out this venue uh, called the Iguana Cafe, which became sort of my main stomping ground as a songwriter for a while, for quite a while, and introduced me to some amazing artists." And I remember Vigo used to read poetry there. And I, at the time he was shooting this film, he would send letters of poetry back to a guy named Duke McVinney, a songwriter that we all knew. And Duke would turn his poems into these wild uh, sort of musical jazz explorations. And so, yeah, it was a it was definitely a time where... Uh, he was a, a really interesting artist aside from being just an actor. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, but, and so there was this sense of like something, yeah, just something, something exciting was happening in Nebraska when he was off making this film and we were getting uh, little missives from, from them about <laughs> basically about how bored he was. <laughs> but it sure doesn't seem like it because man he just he just he kills his performance um he's uh frankie ain't no good i mean (laughs) well it's like i feel like it's it's definitely like it is an unlikable character in terms of just like in real life you wouldn't want to ever meet or hang out with a person with, you know, an SS tattoo on their neck or who's that kind of violent, like, like out of nowhere violent. But, uh, but there is, there is a humanity that Vigo brings to it. And I think even though Sean Penn tried to, I think, cut out <laughs> a lot of him being nice coming through, he still can't help, but kind of like Vigo because it's him. Like he's not totally evil, you know, like, I think I've seen this character in other movies before where they are portrayed as either like, a total idiot, you know, and they're not listening to the good brother and they're just a dummy or they are just really, really bad and you fucking hate them and you can't wait for them to die in the end or explode, you know? And, but this, it's like, it, you definitely like feel for him because his character is definitely got some PTSD going on here, bef- you know? And, uh, yeah, just, 
And it, there's an interesting part in the movie when David Morrison, we haven't talked to you quite yet, uh, asks Charles Bronson's dad, like, where does he get it from? Like, why is he <laughs> this way? Because, like, clearly, like, we're not like that. So what? what is this? <laughs> this wild guy that's that's our relative like how did this happen because even before the war he was known for running around and just causing mischief you know and uh and he doesn't stop with this movie <laughs> and those are my favorite parts of the movie for with him is like him kind of going off and just causing problems for no reason like that whole sequence when he steals that car from that luau um <laughs> and destroys it <laughs> it's just it's just it's kind of reminds me of those kind of characters like like, like some like that somebody it just it just feels like that kind of like you're still a teenager you're still like just up to mischief for no reason other than this is what you do this is like or this is what amuses you when you're bored or this is all you know how to do is just be just like making everybody's lives difficult well let's dig into this a little bit because there is like the, so he's got a, he's got the swastika on his neck, where everyone can see it. He's walking around a lot with his shirt off in the middle of town, and everyone <laughs> still kind of is okay with him. So it's and then uh, and then Charles Bronson has this wonderful scene where he apologizes to Joe. He's like, you know, I I, I gave you a really hard time about marrying a Mexican, and I was so wrong. I was just so wrong. Oh God, I love that scene. That's why I think that yeah, that was yeah. probably my favorite scene uh, <laughs> for Bronson. And then when we see his his childhood room, there's a point where Patricia Arquette comes into his childhood room, and there's a Confederate flag there. Yeah, and so the history of racism is baked into. Yeah, not just Vigo, but this whole town, and all yeah. of these people who, yeah. like, who are not interrupting his racism at all, and it seemed <laughs> to be like they'd be fine with it if he just stopped beating up on white people. Uh, <laughs> he could probably get away with everything else. And I was reading uh, this article called "The Dark History of the Indian Runner." It came out pretty recently, so I guess there is some sort of critical reclamation of this film going on. Hmm. Uh, but Sean Penn talks about how the whole use of the Indian Runner, the Native American character who who shows up, sort of like out of the Doors movie, like a yeah. a, a magical <laughs> Indian yeah. trope. Yeah. Uh, and the way what Penn said was that he sees the the his, the settler history of the white people of that county in that town as being the cause or the uh, sorry, there's huge noise going on out in Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, there that he sees that history of the white settler culture that that karma is sort of is part of the justification for why Frankie is the way Frankie is hmm. that hmm. whether that's that it's like the the sins of the father will be visited upon the son or that he is the karma or that 
that yeah just something because I, when i watched it what in, in 91 i was not as sophisticated about this stuff as i i think i am now and i pointedly said as i think i am now um <laughs> uh, because i'm sure in 10 years i'll be even le- i'll be i'll realize how unsophisticated i am now but uh but watching it this time i definitely had these some alarm bells go off about the sort of tokenizing of Native Americans as just a symbol to explain white people. Uh, and if you watch it, you might might have a similar reaction. But I will take Sean Penn at his word that that's that it's an intentional uh, challenge to the the history of genocide in this country as opposed to just what it looks like on the face which is a white director using native american iconography and imagery to i don't know to make his own statement <laughs> which was certainly popular in the 90s right <laughs> that's the thing that it, did, oliver stone did it more than once uh and there there is a part in this movie where joe finds a like a, a arrowhead yeah in the ground so there's definitely not just the symbol of the the actual native american walking around but there's little other things sprinkled uh throughout um i i had some uh eastern promises flashback seeing vigo naked fully naked covered in ta- covered in tattoos <laughs> early on like vigo just the guy likes to you know he's I don't want to say that he likes to whip out his dick, but I will say that he definitely is an actor who is unafraid, unafraid and willing to you know, add, add some equality to the objectification of the human form. Uh, yeah. And then like that movie too is also about like brothers, right? Isn't that like, isn't Vigo and Vincent Cassell, aren't they sort of like brothers and one's wilder than the other? And like, yeah. I feel like there's a little bit of a, a mirroring thing going on, something there. Um, and, uh, but yeah, his, his performance, this movie, it's just like, as to be expected, just incredible. He's just so good. Electric. Um, just, electric. It like, yeah. this should have like catapulted him into like you're one of the great actors but it just it still took him a while to kind of work through like he was still good in things he's in you know bigger movies after this like he shows up in crimson tide and carlito's way with sean penn gi jane like, gi jane but it wasn't until lord of the rings when they were he was like a superstar and thankfully it didn't ruin him he kept giving great performances even after he broke big like especially in all those cronenberg movies where i think he's just brilliant in all of them I think that's one of the best working relationships between an actor and a director ever. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, just, and there's just a good amount of trust from Sean Penn to kind of have your movie. Cause the movie kind of all hinges on his performance, his character, and then the relationship between him and his brother and to give it to an unknown for the most part um, was just faith. And I wonder what it was he saw or where he saw him that like clicked that he was the guy because I would say that if Sean Penn was interested in still acting, I could see this being the role that he would have given himself. Yeah, totally. You know, like this is very much like the Sean Penn type character, the uh, the unruly, <laughs> the guy that you're you're scared to 
because he's gonna punch you out of nowhere because he's emotionally yeah. it's uh, kind of like well it's crippled it, it reminds it, me of the role he played in what's the de palma vietnam film with michael j oh, Fox. Uh, casualties of war casualties of war that's yeah th- it's the it it's that guy uh yeah so yeah yeah it's uh tremendous tremendous performance and and yeah, I I, I read that Viga uh, that uh, Sean Penn saw just like the look of him, thought he was he had a, a real angular mm-hmm. quality to him that made him just stand out. And then they went; he and the producers went to visit him on the set of Young Guns Two that he was mm. acting on to offer him the role, and. Uh, yeah, good job. Good job, Sean Penn, finding one of the great actors of our generation. Uh, really, between you and me, Sean, we are responsible for Vigo. So, <laughs> high five, buddy. High five. You you got him the the manager. You, you got him the role. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so let's talk about David Morse. One of the, I, I, I'd say he is an actor the world is wrong about. Very much so. I feel he is like so underrated. Yeah. And like, but at the time of this movie, he was coming off the hit show. He was one of the main people in St. Elsewhere. And that was sort of the th- reason why anyone would know him at all because he was in America's Homes week mm-hmm. after week. Uh, and uh, and this is sort of before he was really, I guess he shows up in so many movies in the 90s. And he's just one of those guys that I think a lot of people don't know his name and like oh that guy (laughs) he's in so many things and he's always so good and so intense and he's also like sean bean you never know whether he's going to be the real bad guy or the 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 real good guy Mm -hmm. (laughs) because he has that's crazy because his vibe is so like i would say that just compassion and feeling is what you just radiates off this guy (laughs) And then when he, but then when he plays the heavies, it's so great. It's so awesome. Well, because he still has that kind of, like, either it's a phony compassion or whatever. Like, you still, this is where the people get in trouble is they trust him. And then it turns out he's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, in, like in Dancer in the Dark, you know, like where you're just like, is he going to be a good David Morrison this or is he going to betray everybody? Uh, <laughs> and. He he's just so good and like I think he definitely like he just has that kind of every man quality in the way of like he just kind of looks like everybody's dad like he has that he kind of reminds me of uh Michael Moriarty a little bit like what Morgan Moriarty did in the 80s like Although, when he was in movies where he was sort of like yeah but Moriarty like always a, comes off as a little bit creepy yeah, so does David Morris, I think. Really? <laughs> something I did, like, watching this movie, I'm still like, is he going to do something bad? <laughs> like, I just don't. Because you never know with Morris. You never know whether he's going to be the good guy or the bad guy. He's like, he, there's something sneaky about him that, like, he he's always seems helpful and seems like he's going to be the good guy. But then when he isn't, we're all fucked. Then you have 12 monkeys where he's spreading the disease everywhere, you know? <laughs> so it's, you can never, tr- maybe it's because of all the movies after this, of him being like the secret bad guy. It made me like watching it 
wondering. I think the first note I wrote was Morse, good guy, question mark. And in a way, he isn't great in this movie because he helps his brother kind of keep getting away with being shitty and awful to people. And he's like, he is the, you know, he's he's using his power as a cop to let this guy get away with it. You know, after he like bashes a guy's face in in a bar or whatever, like he still is letting him you know, get a pass in a way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is in the song, in the original spring. Like, that's what this song is about. Um, man turns his back on his family. That man just ain't no good. Yeah. I don't um, know. Man helps a guy with a swastika keep beating up on people. Be- beat up people. <laughs> Maybe that guy ain't no good. <laughs> Maybe that guy ain't no good either. Yeah. Um, and there's just so many good scenes. Like he's such a good reactor in this movie. Like just people throwing yeah. stuff at him figuratively and literally. And he, uh, the, it's just him kind of, and like, it's just like the intent. It's like Vigo is instantly intense in this movie. Whereas David Morse, it's like a slow percolating sort of like simmering pot, you know? And there's just so many good scenes. Um, with hit with him in this like he's just like he just yeah i just he's just an incredible actor i love him so much and like the main the big scene with him and vigo in the bar when he cuts his hand open yeah and like that whole that whole moment which is just so to me that's like the casavetti's kind of there like that's it's like it's just like this very emotional it's just actors just like in a room uh, just talking and just like the the emotions kind of going up and down and just the intensity in that whole scene and like he goes from uh, concern to anger to sadness like he just like goes through the whole range of everything in that scene it's just so good um, <laughs> and then and I gotta and say I, something and just he Morse is a lesson in a kind of acting that. Uh, I that I just that I love, which is he's he's totally invested, he's totally present, but the guy I just feel like he never forces anything. There's no there's no effort. The or if there is effort, it's it seems effortless. He just it, he always yeah. seems like he's speaking just to whoever he's with in the scene, there's no sense of emoting or tro- or pushing, and I think that's probably why he works so much because well, he yeah he he feels so real, like he feels like you just you forget when you're watching him in everything that he's an actor that he is acting because it just feels so natural and just so like just feels like oh this guy just walked into this room and he's interacting with these these actors but it's like no he's an actor (laughs) he's just there's something super super grounded about him in everything even when he's in ridiculous crazy movies like as a corrupt cop chasing bruce willis around or whatever there's something just so i mean because he just looks he doesn't look like the person you would think was an actor like he just looks like a guy that you deal with in life <laughs> you know, right. like compared to Vigo, who looks like this chiseled, you know, Adonis, <laughs> and like everybody else, like even Charles Bronson, like everyone, all the all the other people in this movie have this sort of movie star quality, 
And I think that's sort of why David Morse has been able to slip by for decade after decade and and not really get the huge recognition because he's just sort of so natural and believable. You just kind of don't think of him as being an actor in a weird way, even though you're watching him in a movie in front of you and that's all you know him from. There's just something about that. Like, he's never playing it too big. He's just, it's just like all very, like, he's so good. Like, I love him in Treme. Oh, I was just thinking about that. He's, uh, he's so so good in that show. Also playing a cop, um, who looks the other just, way sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> I think cops may do that often <laughs> with the people that they know. Uh, but now uh, yeah, he's just yeah. I, I hope that someday he'll like. I don't know. I just feel like he'll be one of those actors where he'll pass away, and the obit will list all the great things he did, and everyone will be like, "Oh yeah, he was great." And it's like. But we should recognize him now while he's around. <laughs> that he's really, really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that scene, that scene where he's washing his cop car, and that weird lady just following him around. The, I love that scene. <laughs> that's, the car. that's that's one and of like, my favorite scenes in the film. It's and like, it's are you sort afraid of, of me? Like, are you afraid of me? I f- it's Doesn't almost she- like a. <laughs> Go on. Well, it's like a comic relief or something because she's this odd, like, must be not an actor, just like a real person in that town, like, kind of cross-eyed, sort of out of time. For a just second, sh- do you feel like it might, that might be Bruce McCullough? <laughs> or I was thinking, like, it feels like an Amy Sedaris character, you know? Like, it feels like a Strangers with Candy thing going on here. But, like, it's uh, <laughs> her just following around Asking him about some hippies, I guess, that are camping out on her farmland or something, from mm-hmm. what I gauge. Like, that's what she's complaining about. But she's also just like, because his parents had just died. And and so she's just like, I'll give you a shoulder to cry on. Like, I'll, you know, like, I'll make you dinner. And she, it's literally like her, like, chasing him around this car <laughs> and him just looking like he's trying to ignore her, but he can't. And then, yeah, she eventually is like, are you afraid of me? <laughs> that scene is great because that scene is not, to me, that's a scene most people would put on the cutting room floor or just like, why would you even write that? But it definitely shows like, Joe's patience with everybody and everything that he's like so like calm and collected with dealing with all these people all the time in this movie until he can't anymore. But uh... <laughs> and it's all one shot, so you you got to I think I got to think that it's just like Sean Penn saw this woman and had this idea. I was like, what if we do? Let's just try this. I, and I, I get a sense like that that is. I mean, that's kind of the actor director thing. It's like, yeah. Let's just try a little improv scene. So you just keep talking to him, and Joe, you just keep moving around and trying to wash this car. Um, oh, I guess this is a good transition to talk about Sean Penn as a director and the move in the kind yeah. of the movie as a whole here. Uh, so impressed because usually when you see movies by an actor, especially in this era in the '90s in the early aughts, like kind of the indie boom, they definitely feel less cinematic they feel a little stagey they feel like they're based on a play or something like it's like i feel like there was a lot of those movies where oh it's directed by so-and-so an actor and it's all about the actors and it doesn't quite click like are they got they got better as a director as they went on but this movie it's just it's so well done like the mood and the atmosphere just like how sad and real and raw everything feels like he really did capture the mood 
of the Springsteen song in film form and the uh, album of Nebraska as a whole. Like that kind of ghosty feeling that you get when you listen to that album, which is an incredible album. I feel this movie really gives you the feeling of that without playing a single song from the, from the album. It could have very easily been him just going through every track in Nebraska, not just Highway Patrolman, but like everything and giving, trying to like make the mood through this familiar music. But the fact that there isn't any, but you just, he just gets that. There's just something about this empty dying town. You know, it's just like the way the streets look and the way Kenny casting all these sort of real looking kind of weathered kind of worn out people as the extras, like the, the people in the, apartment where Vigo lives at a hotel or whatever like the the old man who laughs yep. when sh- when uh, Vigo flips the lady's shirt up over her head and he's just smoking and laughing and you're like I believe that guy really lives there maybe he's an actor but like there's something very he, he, he got it right <laughs> making this movie yeah yeah for uh, that like really opening shot like you, you, yeah the-, the opening shot it's it's a, it's great it makes me very excited to watch all the other movies of his because I really just never, I don't know why I never saw this movie or thought about, like, maybe because Sean Penn is a director. I was like, I don't know. Maybe that's good. I don't know. But it's totally good. It's, uh, he learned from who? I don't know. I don't know well, which from, director. I think from Hal, I mean, he, he credits Hal Ashby and John Cassavetes, and I feel both of those influences on it. Like, yeah. the the vibe is I feel like cinematically he's doing at he's doing Ashby and yeah. directorially for the actors he's doing Cassavetes but he's yeah. doing his own yeah. but he's doing his own thing like it doesn't feel if he didn't say that I wouldn't think oh this feels like Hal Ashby or this feels like John Cassavetes but since he very openly credits those I can yeah. see that it's his version of that like I don't know, just like that again, that opening scene, it's it's this car chase, but the way it looks and feels has that sort of Ashby soft mm-hmm. vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it like the just the way, yeah, the way the film looks, it almost looks like super sixteen or something. Like it, it kinda gives it that that indie vibe. Like this isn't some slick Hollywood movie. Like it has that kind of rough around the edges. Uh, feel to it, but not in like the handheld Casavetti's way. Like, like you said, it's more like Hell Ashby. It's more got has that like, like so many people try to emulate the cinema of the seventies, and what he does here is he just understands what made those movies great, and makes a movie sort of in the spirit of the seventies, as opposed to trying to make it look like or or match exactly like a seventies movie, which I think is why it's effective. It would have been maybe too gimmicky if he went full into even though this takes place in that time in the late sixties, early seventies. So it, yeah. So are there, I don't, we've kind of talked through the whole film. Are there any particular scenes or parts of the film that you feel like we should give some extra attention (laughs) to? Uh, I feel sorry for Dennis Hopper's character to be the bartender in this town. (laughs) And like, you're going to have to deal with something breaking every time, every day. Uh, 
And it's funny because I assumed that Dennis Hopper was going to have a bigger role in this movie, you know, because his name is kind of high up on the on the credits. And uh, and he had worked he had worked as a director with Sean Penn a few years earlier on Colors. Uh, and uh, he just he shows up kind of more closer to the end of the movie. It's not really in the first half. I feel like it's in the second half that his character shows up. And uh, yeah, he's just a bar- and he's really weird in that moment. The moment we talked about between the two brothers with with uh, he's like has like a nervous nervous laugh like when David Morris is sort of first in there questioning Vigo as to why are you not by the side of your pregnant wife who's about to give birth and Dennis Hopper's just kind of in the corner like laughing kind of like a little weirdo (laughs) and then when shit gets more emotional when he realizes like oh no these people are going to fight then he excuses himself to go to the bathroom Um, (laughs) but what does he say I have to visit visit my throne or something yeah I think he's visit the throne And uh, it's just good. It was just a nice little Dennis Hopper weird moment. Um, and I wonder, yeah, if, if he, uh, because of the, of, of the same composer from the hotspot, I wonder if he helped in any way being an indie filmmaker himself, uh, helped with any advice to Sean Penn when, when, while making this movie or before making this movie. Um, also actor turned director. So, But yeah, those little moments with Hopper really enjoyed that and at the end we have this intercut sort of uh not quite like the end of the godfather but the same kind of vibe where we're intercutting between the birth of vigo's child uh, with patricia arquette uh, alone there and then vigo's murderous rampage that yeah basically ruins any possibility for him to be a father to that kid and in that scene it's a very so it's a very graphic murder scene but it's maybe even a more graphic birth scene we're actually seeing a birth in in uh, real time during this. And I I read about it. There's actually, there was a Nebraska couple that gave Sean Penn the permission to film their birth so that like you see the baby actually coming out of the mother. And uh, it's uh, again, more of that sort of Cassavetes kind of realism. And then we come to the, the, the final the finale of the movie and i i really i just i thought it it really it nails the end like uh it there's the the big the final chase where mm-hmm. just like out of the song he chases him to the to the state line and then there's this basically a mirror of the first scene except in this one uh frankie isn't shooting at Joe and Joe doesn't kill him, but he pulls over, he gets out. We see him. Vigo sees him as a kid. Mm -hmm. And this, this is one of the things that is replaying throughout the movie, throughout the movie is that Joe is remembering is seeing Vigo as this kid and not as the man, the bad man that he is. It's the, the good kid that he was. And, it ends on this line, which I just think is so wonderful for in terms of, I don't know, 
tying the bow on the movie and the song. So he, the line is, he turned his back on it. Joe is saying in voiceover about Frankie, he turned his back on himself and his family. I went home that night. I kissed my wife and my child. I worked my garden. Life is good. My brother Frank, dot, dot, dot. And if you know the song, you know what the line is. My brother Frank, he ain't no good. But the, <laughs> but the movie doesn't give you that line. It gives you the setup, which I just, I think when I, when that happened, when I saw that the first time, that's when I just completely surrendered to the film. Like, oh, yeah, that's so wonderful. That is, uh, you don't put the song in, but you end on the song's line. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh. Is it, is this the best uh, based on a song uh, movie? <laughs> I gotta think so. There's, I mean, there, there's the there's the you, me, and Dupree, uh, <laughs> with Harper Wilson. Valley PTA, uh, <laughs> Billy Joe McAllister uh, jumped off the Tallahassee Bridge. Yeah, I think these are both these. This is better than that. Uh, uh, the uh, the Clint Eastwood movie Pink Cadillac was that based on the Springsteen song, or no. did he write the song for the movie? I don't think. Um, I just think it's or they just used it. In... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, like just it's just such a cool idea to be like, here's this you know three minute song, and I'm going to take the characters, take the feel, the tone of this song, and make a hundred minute movie based on that and and do it well and do it justice and do a great job like i wonder what it was like being springsteen watching this this movie well he liked it he uh yeah he, he thought he thought it was a he did a great job you know I, I i wish more people made movies based upon they might be giant songs <laughs> no one's done that yet so. yeah which one would you <laughs> um I don't know. Right now, because of this, I'm thinking of your racist friend. <laughs> Make it into a, a drama. Uh, Anna Ang. I think Anna Ang could be a good, you know, just like a movie about about Anna Ang. Uh, hotel detective. You can do a movie about a, a lady being a hotel detective. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, they would match. They would have to match the tone of the song, so the movie would have to be really quirky. And feel like, you know. Yeah, that's why I think Anna Ang might be good because you know, just a, a movie all about this this Anna Ang character and a guy who's obsessed with her because they are getting older yeah. and they still haven't walked in the glow of each other's majestic splendor. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Um, Okay, well, the Indian Runner. It's a, a, a wait. Can we go back for a second? What else did people at your work say about? Like, I don't understand how people who like movies could be hostile. A lot, it's to just this a lot film. of that. It's it's boring. That nothing happens. It's just really slow. There was a lot of comments of like, oh, well, you won't have trouble sleeping if you watch it tonight because that movie's like so slow and boring. And uh, well, I chose not to watch it at like midnight. It's you know, it's a drama <laughs> that I know would be slow and deliberate, and so I wa- I woke up and watched it instead. And I was never I would never say I was bored watching this movie because I'm just captivated by the. Perf- I think a lot of people, even film people, I think people have a hard time with movies where 
it's just about people and it's like real like there's this movie so much like real life like it really feels like you're dropped into real life and it's difficult people and like this like even though the plot of this you could say is very similar to like mean streets which everybody loves but because it has the scorsese flair of camera trickery and you know rolling stone soundtrack it's more fun and this movie there's no one would describe this movie as fun <laughs> the indian runner is not a fun movie and i think you have to maybe be in the right frame of mind or right mood to sit through a not fun movie about difficult people you know that feels real um yeah i mean it took me 30 years to watch this movie because <laughs> I kind of knew it wasn't going to be any fun. I was like, this looks, which is also why I haven't seen the crossing guard or the pledge. I'm like, these movies look very serious. And you know that Sean Penn's a very serious, almost humorless man. Like this is going to not be a good time. So I need to be in the right place to watch. <laughs> I'll be honest. Movies. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> love the crossing guard or the pledge for similar really? reasons for similar. Like I, they're too like, serious, too bleak, too bleak for me. Yeah, the, the the reason this works is because the performances are so phenomenal. The the actors who are like, like in the in those movies, I feel like Nicholson is really underplaying. Which it, I mean, it works for the for the role, for the yeah. kind of film that they're making, but. No, there's something it's different. But when I think about this film, I also think about Buffalo 66. Think of Indian I, Runner. Not, me too. It has that like you're making a 70s movie in the 90s, but you're not. But it doesn't feel stupid. And it's because like, it's you got the spirit of it. And there's something there's moments, too, where Vigo kind of feels like Vincent Gallo in a way. I think it's because yeah. of that chin, like the, the pointy face, but also just the intensity, like that you can just have out of nowhere that kind of like violent, you know, intensity come out, much like Vincent Gallo has in Buffalo 66. Um, worth noting, uh, David Morse shows up again in The Crossing Guard, so clearly him and yeah. Penn had a good, really good working relationship. Um, yeah. And uh, did you see... Um, into the wild. I did not. I should just, see it. To me, that looks kind of not as interesting. It looks definitely a little more Oscar-y than these kind of weird little movies. The book's a great book. I just don't. I just worry I about know. that guy. He's not. He's... Sean Penn or the guy that Out of the Wild is about. The guy that the book, the movie's about. I'm worried about him. He's. <laughs> I don't think you well, should you don't I don't have to think, worry about him anymore. <laughs> I don't think you should go into the wild. I think it's probably a bad idea. <laughs> We've all seen Grizzly Man. Don't go into the wild. <laughs> um <laughs> Okay. Well, uh yeah. well, I'm I'm glad I got to turn you on to the Indian Runner and no, I hope you yeah. tell your colleagues at um, the Austin Film Society then they that were they wrong. should you maybe uh broaden their Cinematic palette. <laughs> uh, one last thing that's worth mentioning about this movie that's an odd trivia thing that I read that's funny that I've never seen before in any movie ever. This won an award. The only award it ever won was the Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists in 1992. Won the silver ribbon to Pino Loki 
for best male dubbing for the voice of Charles Bronson. <laughs> so whatever the Italian Charles Bronson sounds like, wowed, wowed them at the Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists. I hope he stares at this award above his mantle every morning and, you know, thanks his life. <laughs> well, Bronson, like, he was, he was a uh, big international star. Oh, yeah. So maybe yeah. that has to do, that might be an Italy Bronson <laughs> love thing. Yeah, uh, there there was a, uh, there's a few lookalike actors, like there's some guy that I think he's, I don't remember what country he's from, he may even be Asian, but he's like, he looks like Charles Bronson and he makes his own movies as like a Charles Bronson. I, um, I went, when I was in Japan, uh, I was in Tokyo and I had a nice big mustache at the time and a homeless man came up to me and started pointing at me and yelling, Charles Bronson, Charles Bronson. And like playing with his must, playing his, with his face, like it was my mustache. And I think he, he was very impressed that I had a mustache like Charles Bronson. There was a time when he was like the guy that all over the world <laughs> loved. Like he was like kind of what Liam Neeson is right now or Jason Statham. That's like dads around the globe loved seeing Charles Bronson, you know, like shoot people in the face. <laughs> yeah <laughs> whether it was in a western or a death wish movie that was like the tough guy like he was you know that like if it wasn't him it was lee marvin or you know clint eastwood but it's like that was sort of the the thing and what's uh, your favorite bronson god he's really good um the mechanic is great he's really good in that movie I think that movie's fantastic. Is Jan Michael Vincent in that one? Yeah, Jan Michael Vincent yeah. is the is the young upstart in that. I mean, he's great in Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, that's... Another non-mustachioed role. And his performance in the first Death Wish is really, really good. Like, politics aside of, the, of that movie. But, like, he is, like, when he is breaking down in that movie, he is so good. Um, and... Uh, Hard Times is great. I love him and I love that movie, the Walter Hill movie about mm -hmm. boxing. Um, but yeah, he's just like, there's something about him that's really likable. You know, he's a likable, likable man. Uh, and I like, and I like all the silly ones too. Like I love Death Wish 3 is so ridiculous and, uh, you know, and like 10 to Midnight. Yeah. <laughs> like all the 80s schlock. You ever see White Buffalo? Have I seen White Buffalo? I don't know if I have. No, I haven't. Um, Mr. Majestic is really good. Him doing Elmore Leonard. Yeah. Like, that's a great movie. Like, like, he's always good. Like, he, like Clint, can be in some ridiculous movies or some problematic movies, but they're never phoning it in. Maybe, or maybe they are. They're just that charismatic and good that just like you just like you just can't take your eyes off them in anything. But I'm really, really glad that he got to do the Indian Runner kind of at the end there, that it wasn't just Death Wish Five or you know that he was able to be like, no, I'm an actor, I'm a real actor. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> I guess he went a pretty out of good impression there. <laughs> he went out of retirement. Like he wasn't, he would never tour with movies anywhere. But I guess he actually went on the press junket with Sean Penn for this because he liked it so much, and like he was like going to con and, and things when he had kind of stopped doing that for like over a decade, I think. So that's cool. This wasn't um, his last film. 
He did. But it's his last, like, yeah, real, like, last theatrical film. Because I think after this is, like, The Family of Cops Part 1 through 3. three and, yeah. <laughs> uh, which aren't bad. They're not terrible. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah I would... I. I I appreciate that you find him to be likable. I never found Bronson <laughs> to be likable. Uh, I I've definitely liked him in some movies. I definitely Once Upon a Time in the West, absolutely uh, the Great Escape. Oh yeah, I of really course. like He's him amazing. in the Great Escape. Yeah. But once he became a big star, oh, the Dirty Dozen. You know, like, yeah, on his way to becoming a big star, I like him. But once the once he gets, he's got the mustache and the gun, <laughs> it's he ne- it never. That's why I love this movie so much, because he is so lovable. Like the, that that there's a face that he shows us in this film that I don't I've never seen him show before is yeah. someone who is you know, peaceful and thoughtful and has a sense of, I don't know, uh, joy. Yeah. But that's not to knock him. I mean, he's, he's obviously, he's great. And my not finding him likable is a me problem, not a, (laughs) not a, not a him problem. Just saying that he's not universally, I think that he is not a universal, universally uh, likable guy in the same sense that, I don't know, Tim Conway is. <laughs> but man, Death Wish with Tim Conway uh, as awesome. Dorf. Uh, <laughs> Dorf Wish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, but uh, yeah, this, I'm really glad to watch have watched the Indian Runner. Thank you for just finally forcing me to do it. I think that's I think that's one of the great things about this show is uh, there's movies that we're both excited to watch. We're like, oh, finally we get to watch the thing that we love. But like, there's movies that I always knew was going to be good, but for whatever reason, I just like sat on it and sat on it and sat on it and never did it until you were like, okay, we're covering it. And I was like, here we go, and I was very excited to. To finally see it. Radio Andros here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com 
or follow us on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast. And now back to the show. So, Brian, you ever seen The Boss Live? No. Oh. I've always wanted to. I've always heard that it's like the most amazing thing. It's just like the cheapest tickets are still way out of my my price range. <laughs> so I think, you know, just the, the most dire... The thing is, I am a diehard fan, but just I'm not a one with money. Like, I will buy the live, many live albums of his. It's like, I usually don't like live albums at all. But with, with the boss, I make an exception. So it's like, it would be a dream to someday see him live. Yeah. Have you? I mean, you met him once, didn't you? Yeah. I have seen him play live twice, and I have met him once. Saw him on the 1984, on the Born, uh, Born in the USA tour at the Worcester yeah. Centrum. And then, and that was amazing. That was just... I bet, I bet. Like, it really was a show that lives up to all the cliches and not in a way like, oh, I'm expecting this. It's sort of like, holy shit, this is really happening. Like, there was a point at the end where I were at the the Worcester Centrum and I'm just dancing in the in the aisles or in my seats and like with all with all these people I didn't know just like you know while he's doing what's uh he does he's doing like his 50s covers 60s covers thing and I remember him doing uh what's the song now that I can dance watch me now mm, mm. <laughs> I do the bone and it mashed potato uh, and i was just like dancing with these just some dude like just me and some dude. <laughs> just all we're just like dancing and shaking our arms in the air and i was just like oh this is really happening this is what they talked about <laughs> with the bruce springsteen concert and yeah uh and i brought that up to him when i did meet him many years not many years later it, it seemed like many because that was in high school and like five years later i was in la and I was I played this really, really I don't know if I've have I told this show, the story on the show before. You have not. Oh, OK. Well, so I'll tell it now. So I was playing this. I knew this band called Mary's Danish, which is was a sort of cool sort of hip L.A. band. They were part of the Red Hot Chili Peppers scene with other bands like Thelonious Monster. And I knew them because one of their one of the singers in the band was the daughter of a friend of my mother's from high school. So when I moved out to LA, she was like, Oh, you should meet them, meet her. Cause she's in a band and you know, she's a little bit older than you and whatever. I'm sure she just wanted to me to have some connections here to family or people who knew me. And we became friends and then they had me opening shows for them and they got me in with their manager and their manager booked me for this show like I would open a lot of shows for them but for this thing this was this Amnesty Amnesty International benefit and they told me that I was opening but I wasn't really opening I was playing in this little side bar room and there was no PA system and there was music <laughs> like dance club music playing not like dance club music of the 80s not like dance club music now but still like not really conducive to playing music 
And I had invited a few friends to come out and it was not a great show. And what made it the worst was that my, quote, manager was sitting. He did come out. He did come out to watch my show, but he sat in the front row talking with some with this woman while I was playing the whole time. And my friends saw this and it was just all seemed very it was just a very embarrassing and annoying. And I felt dejected and we were I wasn't going to stick around for the Mary's Dana show. And we were on our way out and on our way out, uh, Bruce Springsteen and Patty Skiafla and his producer, Chuck Plotkin, were walking in. And I was just my first reaction was very, oh, man. And now I, I did not only did I have this awful show, but I missed playing for Springsteen. I could have met him. I could, And I had a friend, one of my friends there. I'll give her name out. Her name was Sandra, Sandra Boucher. And she had just finished uh, doing uh, the Landmark education program, which is sort of like an outgrowth of EST. And she was very, very positive in like creating uh, possibilities. And she's like, no, this is not going to be a bad story for you. You're going to go in there. And you're going to play a song for Bruce Springsteen. And I was like, oh, I am? I was like, yeah. And like by the end, she, she kind of got me all jazzed up. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. And so I went inside to the and to the, to the place I have my guitar over my back and I saw that Bruce Springsteen was at the bar he was buying drink like I don't know why he's going to the bar to buy drinks for Patty and Chuck and why Chuck isn't doing that but hey uh that's Bruce Springsteen <laughs> he's a real working class guy <laughs> anyway so and he's wearing like a leather jacket and jeans he's looking like you know kind of crusty Bruce Springsteen and I walk up to stand next to him at the bar and the bartender sort of gives me this scared look of like, you're not going to talk to him, are you? I was like, uh-huh, yes, I am. <laughs> and I was like, uh, excuse me, Mr. Springsteen. I got to get my voice several octaves higher. Excuse me, Mr. Springsteen. Um, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I play. I, I, and he's like, oh, what, what is it, kid? And I was like, well, I, uh, I, I, I played here and I, I'm so bummed. I'm a huge fan of yours. I love all your music and I just, I can't believe that I had the opportunity to maybe play a song for you and you just arrived and I just finished. And he is like, well, you got a tape? I was like, yeah, well I do. I actually have a demo tape right here, but I know, you know, the story is you, I didn't say the story is, I know you made it by just walking into an office and playing for someone. I'm not saying it's going to make it for me, but just to actually get to play a song for you would mean so much. And he's like, you know, I, I, I don't know how he put up with me. He's like, it's kind of loud here. I was like, <laughs> well, we can go right backstage because I'm a part of the show. We go right backstage. I can play you backstage. And he was like, all right. And I was like, <laughs> so we walk backstage and I play him one song and he's grinning at it and he's just staring at my hands and making the smile. And I finish it. And like my friends are there now. There's a little crowd gathering because it's Bruce Springsteen. And someone's taking pictures somewhere, somewhere. There are pictures of this. I don't know if I'll ever find them. If you're listening and you know where they are, <laughs> give me a call. But so I finished playing the song. He's like, oh, man, that's great. You got any more? It's like, <laughs> got any more? Are you kidding me? So I played him another one. And he's like, oh. and he's like very encouraging. By then, the manager what? who'd been talking during my show, he's now there because I'm with Springsteen. 
word's gotten out. Oh, Andras is playing for Springsteen. Oh, no, it's embarrassing. Oh, no, it's okay. It's cool. Whatever. So he, <laughs> Springsteen's talking to me. He's like, so uh, what are you doing for the kid? <laughs> and I was like, I said, oh, let's see how this goes. He's like, well, you know, we're recording a demo and we're playing shows. And he's like, no, 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 no. What are you doing for the kid? <laughs> and he's like, uh, well, you know, it's just it's his business. And like, but the whole time I felt like Springsteen was kind of like giving me a lesson of like, you should be asking these questions, you know, <laughs> and uh, it wrapped up. I gave him the tape, expected to hear him call me for like three weeks. <laughs> Never happened. Uh, I don't blame him for it, but it was uh, it was definitely one of the high points of my you know, my musical existence to get a chance to play a song for one of the guys, one of the people who really inspired me to. That's amazing. Yeah. What was the song you played for him? What was the first one? Do you remember? Uh, God, I really wish I, there's, there's one song called it's over, which was the second song. And I can't, I could go back and find my early demos. It was on one of my early, it was on the tape that I gave him, but I don't have it right now. I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember exactly. They were not my best songs, but I think I probably delivered them with a lot of passion. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think he got that there was something there, something that was worth his attention. Or maybe he was just being like a really cool, you know, like taking the time. Like he, that's what I'm saying. He lived up to all the Bruce Springsteen cliches of like man of the people willing to take time out from his day this far into his career like 20 yeah. years into his career and not call security not brush me off to give me those 10 minutes that i have now told the story you know hundreds of times yeah. in my life at the yeah. time i couldn't stop telling it now i tell it maybe <laughs> once a year if that so this was the retelling this was this year's retelling of that story oh, good. so thanks for asking me and i did see him again at the tacoma dome uh a few years later about a decade later and it was it the, the Tacoma Dome was rough. I didn't feel like like Bruce Springsteen translated to the Northwest. I feel like the Northwest audiences were just a little bit like arms folded like, yeah, this is good. This is good. Yeah, that's kind of how they it watch It wasn't music. like an East Coast like <laughs> just we're going to cut loose cuz we just got off from the factory kind of vibe. Oh <laughs> uh, uh, boy. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I love Bruce Springsteen, though. I mean, me too. Yeah. yeah, I think we're both big fans. I don't think the world is wrong about him. No, no, the world's the world's pretty darn right about him, uh, except for you know, well, those those tickets are expensive. <laughs> That's a bummer. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, you know what isn't expensive, Brian? Just sending us an email. It's free. I mean, I mean you value your time. I get it. Your time is valuable. I'm not saying that your time has no value, but, uh, but if you want to tell us that our time has value, you could give us a little bit of your time. Write us, a, write us an email. Tell me, tell us what you yeah. think about this show or other shows, the movies we talk about, the movies we should talk about, about your, yeah. your experience with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> if you're in. Bruce Springsteen listening to this, what was your experience in that moment with Andros? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to know. <laughs> I'd love to know. Does he tell that story every? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what songs I played, Bruce? I, I can't remember. I was all I was doing was looking at you, 
and <laughs> couldn't and not believing how amazing my life was in those in that moment. Um, and uh, if you want to find out how amazing, I, don't, I keep trying to bring us back to all this crap I have to say. Uh, so yes, you can find us on our website. There's a, a page for every one of these episodes on the website at www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. And you can find us on a couple of social media platforms. Uh, Brian handles the Instagram and you love it there, don't you? Yeah, it's okay. It's pretty sweet. It's a nice little, yeah, you know. It's fine. Yeah. And <laughs> I and I, I handle the Twitter account, at World is Wrong Pod. The, the least said about it, the better. Uh, <laughs> is there a reason why we're not on Facebook, Brian? At this point, it's just, there's so many of these damn things. They always change. And uh, do we need more than two? We know we don't hear from anyone on those two. Until we're flooded with comments on both of those, then maybe we can expand out. But I don't. I don't need to be friended by some people. I don't need that. <laughs> yeah, you have you have Facebook pages, but you don't. You 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 never check them. You have two uh, Facebook I've been pages. Che- I uh, do I? Oh yeah. Uh, I have two of them. Yeah, one with Jerry Lewis's picture and one with your picture. Oh yeah. Uh, one I don't remember why I abandoned, uh, and then the other one I haven't looked at since 2016. So. Yeah, that's just there for the internet graveyard. Uh, I'm sure people have messaged me over the last six, seven years. Yeah, probably. Don't care. <laughs> don't care. Don't. There's a, I just decided that I had not. I wanted nothing to do with it. I can handle Instagram because it's just pictures, you know? I'm with you. It no, was, I, I yeah. like, I lost so many friends through pointless arguments on Facebook. Yeah. And I know how passionate I am about film and haven't for some reason for like i kind of like that there's not a lot of interaction on twitter there's you know (laughs) the way that facebook does engagement it just it feels like it just is well mixing things up and like creating fights and i don't want to do yeah because like twitter which i hate it's still just people just kind of going and then you can ignore it or you can repost someone going and that's it and instagram it's all these like here's a picture you can like the picture or whatever, but then, but Facebook is so much under this guise of like, these are your friends and this is what the friend is saying and here's a conversation, but it's still just bah! But people act like, but then people take it to heart and they their internet personas get mixed in with the real ones and especially when they're trying to talk about like the 2016 election or whatever, then people start getting really shitty. Whether whatever side you're on, family, friends, and everyone just hates each other, even though it all is just fucking fantasy anyways. Like, it's not like it's the real thing that these people are ever saying. And it's just bullshit. So that's why we're not on Facebook. Okay. People, in case you were curious, now you know. Uh, And... uh... Did we, did we say what we're doing next week? Because no, next week let, we have no. a heck of an episode. Oh, boy. We are doing Olsen and Johnson's Hell's a Poppin', a much as positive and fun as the Indian runner was not. <laughs> so I think we can, in two weeks, like, we will go out. This is going to be a fun, fun episode, a fun, fun movie. Uh, hard to track down, but it is on YouTube. So watch Hell's a Pot. It's actually a pretty good quality one on YouTube. Uh, I'm very excited. This is a movie that is near and dear to me that really means a lot. And I'm just pumped to, to rip it open and go crazy. Yeah, I'd never heard of this film. But now that I have and I've seen it, 
I am much better for it. And I encourage you all to check it out. And to remember, please, please remember, even whether whether you're Frank or you're Joe, as far as... <laughs> These these Cain and Abel brothers of the Indian brothers, what, whichever one you relate to the most, it doesn't matter. Wherever you are, wherever you go, you're going to find that the world is wrong and it is probably wrong about you. I used to know my brother like I used to know I'd always be a farmer. But drifting off in the train that day was a stranger. He looked like a hero. The closeness I felt with my brother was with that rough and tumble kid I knew before high school distractions. And then later my wife and farm occupied our time together. In the last few years before going overseas, Frank had become branded the hellraiser of town. And he'd come to no good. Maybe leaving so suddenly was the only mercy he knew for the grief he'd caused before. As for my parents, Frankie was right. They would not take it personally. They say some of the boys coming back are coming back real confused. Frank left confused. Well, maybe I'll straighten him out. So Randall said. Oh, my God. Now my boy's comparing his mama to a moron. What's the comparison, Mom? He's a very restless boy, that Frankie. That's what got him into trouble, you know. That's why he left. I thought maybe he just hated cops. Joe, Joe, don't say that. Listen to your mama. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.